My Govan, and welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video I'm going to talk about a writing that Tolkien came up with very closely in connection with the Athrabeth uh, Finrod uh, Andreth, which I have done a whole video on before and I'll link to in the description. And that whole discussion is between Finrod and a human woman named Andreth, and it's all about the fate of elves and men relative to death and all that sort of thing, and how they come into kind of a, a weird conversation about what the god of the Middle-earth universe, Eru Iluvatar, might end up doing in the future to try to address the problems created by Melkor or Morgoth. And in there, it comes really close to just flat out stating that there's going to be an incarnation of God, which, of course, is paralleling the Christian belief that Jesus is God incarnate. And Tolkien had thoughts about this. He was, at one point, actually writing notes to himself and saying, isn't this already a little bit too too Christian? Nevertheless, there is a an additional writing associated with this, which is riffing off of a part of the conversation that Finrod and Andreth have about why it is that humans think that they are mortal. Because Finrod and the other elves are under this assumption that that's just the way you are. That's, you know, the gift of men that Iluvatar gave them, and therefore that's just their nature. That's the way they're supposed to be. And Andreth says, no, we think that originally we were immortal and we became mortal. And it's Morgoth's fault. And Finrod's like, then he's really more powerful than even we realized and we've seen him up close. <laughs> and he, he asks her, okay, so what happened? And Andreth's like, we don't really tell elves about that. <laughs> Nevertheless, Tolkien goes and writes what's called the Tale of Adonel, which is a story told to her by a woman from a different group of men. She is from the people of Beor, and Adonel, I believe, is supposed to be from the people of Marak, who are associated with the House of Hador. And she apparently gets this story from Adonel about the origins of men and how they came to be mortal. And this is basically a variant on the story in which Finrod pressures her and she eventually says, okay, well, this is what I heard from this other person. So what makes this story interesting is the fact of its very strong parallels, but also significant differences to the Genesis account of the fall in the Bible. Of course, Tolkien is a Catholic, he would have been very familiar with the Genesis account, and so it makes sense that there's going to be some parallels here. But like most of his Middle-earth stuff, even where there are strong parallels, there are significant differences. And one of those that we can kind of look to for you know, an example, which is really closely connected because it goes back to the creation, is that in the Genesis account, of course, God creates the whole world and it's all very good, and it only gets ruined or cursed or whatever after man and you know Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil at the instigation of the serpent 
Whereas in Tolkien's writings, Melkor introduces discord into the music of the Ainur from the very beginning, and this already creates things about, you know, the creation that are not really correct. They're not right. There's something wrong with it. It's And this is where we get the phrase Arda Mard. There's something from inception which is not you know, good about creation. So there's already some differences in the way that Tolkien handles his mythology versus Genesis, so we shouldn't expect exact parallels. Nevertheless, there are significant similarities, and it's worth looking at those. And this is, again, one of those things This probably is not included in the final version, in part because he thought this is just get a little bit too heavy-handed with the overt, you know, references to the Christian faith. And he wasn't really into that sort of thing, although he definitely went there a lot in the Beth itself. And then kind of thought, you know, maybe that's a little much. So let's take a look at the tale of Adonel and look at how it's similar to and different from the Genesis account of the fall of humans because it's a pretty interesting comparison. Now, in the Genesis account, one of the things that people will typically point out when they're talking about, you know, the significant points of how the serpent deceives Eve, and then Eve eats the fruit, and then Adam eats the fruit, the serpent doesn't come out and just come with a direct frontal assault, let's say, against God's commands and rules. God has already told Adam and Eve, you can eat of any fruit or tree of the garden except this one. And the serpent doesn't come in there and just go guns blazing and say, that's all a big lie, you should listen to me instead. Instead, he comes and says, has God told you that you can't eat of any tree of the garden? And Eve says, no, he says we can't eat of this tree or touch it or we'll die. And this is already a little bit interesting because God doesn't say you can't touch it. He says you can't eat it. Now, is Eve kind of glossing God's command here? Or is she, you know, is is there actually something else that we don't get directly told to us in Genesis that then Eve is kind of repeating and this is how we get it for the first time? You know, it's not... We don't need to dwell on the theology of all that, but the point being, she kind of twists it a little bit already, and so it's like there's a little bit of a hint that the command is not clear to her, or that she is already interpreting it to mean things that it doesn't necessarily mean, which is going to lead down a road of, well, maybe it's not quite so you know, what I thought it was. So, only after Eve comes back with this response does the serpent then kind of push a little further and say, you won't die. If you eat it, you'll become wise and be like God. And, you know, that's, you know, the theory behind this is that God doesn't want you to be like God and therefore he's keeping you from this knowledge that you would have if you ate this fruit and which would make you just like him. And Eve then looks at the tree and sees that it's, you know, look the fruit looks good and that it's apparently 
desirable for the purpose of gaining knowledge and all this. And so she eats it and then she gives it to Adam and he eats it. And then, you know, the rest of the story is basically God coming and calling him out on it and then cursing the serpent for what he did, Eve for what she did, and Adam for what he did. And so that's, it's really brief in the Genesis account. Tolkien's story is more developed and a little more narrative-like, which is not surprising because Tolkien never really could stop himself from expanding hugely on any kind of narrative. Uh, But his starts a little bit different. In Genesis, of course, we have just Adam and Eve, and that's the only two people we know exist in the Genesis story. And what we get in the tale of Adonel is there seem to be already a number of people around in terms of human population, which, of course, mirrors how he does the elves. The elves awake in a fairly large number, not a, you know, just one pair. And so there's a little bit of a difference there, which could be used to explain how he does things a little bit different, because what happens is the tale says that they originally woke and they heard a voice, which is the voice of Iluvatar, basically kind of instructing them and being a little bit helpful to them, but not so helpful that he's you know just kind of doing everything for them. They'll ask it questions, and the voice will say, "Well, don't you know? Try to find the answer yourselves, because you'll have joy in finding the answer yourself, and you know this is part of your growing process." And she she says that over time, they become really impatient to make and do things of their own, and so they listen to the voice less and less, and then comes Morgoth in a form that, of course, looks, you know, very appealing, and he's looks like a human, but he's very beautiful. So he doesn't come in the form of a serpent. And here I should say, the word that gets translated serpent, if I remember correctly, and it's been a while since I read this, so I might be a little off, I think literally means shining one. And so it's not 100% clear that it's actually a serpent. The term does get used for serpents, and I think the idea is that, you know, snakes can look kind of shiny because their skin can reflect a lot of light, their eyes also. Um, But the word also gets used apparently for uh, things like Leviathan, you'll see that word pop up in the Bible, and it's like big sea creatures, or you know, it all even gets used for the term dragon. So it's like we don't know exactly what this thing is. The words in Hebrew, it, it's kind of a more, in one sense, primitive language where there are fewer words, and so the words that are there can mean a lot of different things. Nevertheless, everybody's kind of under the assumption that it's an animal, but it could actually be something like a shining, you know, being of any kind almost. So this could be like Tolkien's way of glossing the Genesis story and saying what actually happened was Lucifer came in the form of just a radiant-looking human. Who knows? Because it would be kind of weird if an animal just suddenly started talking to you. At any rate... Morgoth does come in the form of a human, but bigger and more glorious and all this stuff, and he's like wearing gold and jewels and everything else. And he comes and he tells the humans, after they've already kind of started going down the wrong path by not listening to the voice of God, he says, you shouldn't have been left alone and uninstructed. You know, this is bad. You should have been 
you know, helped out. And so he offers them assistance and the tale goes that he doesn't help them to make their own stuff as much as they were hoping he would. But if anybody ever expressed any doubt about him, then he would, you know, just kind of like throw gifts at him to try to appease him. But it was always in the form of, I'm not going to help you learn to do stuff yourself. I'm just going to make your life easier, you know, just for nothing to get them to then side with him. And of course you can kind of see where the psychology of this is going, but there is kind of a parallel with the way that the serpent or whatever we want to call it initially goes in and says, did God really say he Morgoth likewise does not come and directly assault, you know, what these people have already kind of learned and, and know he comes in and tries to be, you know, all oh, you poor people, this, you know, you shouldn't have been left alone, you know, and tries to just get in that way. And over time, they come to rely more and more on what he gives them because they don't want to go back to what they now see as a very poor and unhappy life because he's given them so much more. So eventually somebody mentions the fact that they've been hearing a voice and he gets all angry and says, that's the voice of the dark and the dark wants you because it wants to eat you basically. And he says, I'm the Lord of the dark, but the dark wants you. And he leaves for a while and without his gifts, they kind of become a little more, you know, poorer in, in a sense because they don't have his stuff and he hasn't really been teaching them to do things on their own. So, you know, he's, he's been giving them the fish, but not teaching them how to fish to, you know, go back to the old, old aphorism about, you know, what's more valuable. So he leaves for a while and they are in kind of an unhappy state. And then he eventually returns and says, all right, y'all got to pick. Is it going to be me or the voice? And the, People there, there are some people who would prefer to follow the voice, but at this point they're a minority, and they're also in a position of, you know, it's not really very fun to follow the voice at this point. And Morgoth is kind of threatening him, basically saying, I'm going to just outright, you know, make your lives harder if you don't, you know, follow me. And so he basically kind of extorts them into then swearing allegiance to him and you know swearing that they won't follow the voice and then he commands them to build him a house where you know he will come at whatever times that he's there and then they will bring their petitions to him to ask for whatever they need and so they build him this house even the ones that wanted to follow the voice kind of fall into line just to get along basically and then after this is done he will start taking petitions, but it always is kind of at a cost. It's like, you have to bring me a gift now. And the things that he asks them to do get worse and worse, harder and harder, and even get to the point where he's asking them to do outright bad things, like, you know, hurt each other, presumably. It doesn't get into a lot of detail, but eventually we do get a clear picture of people will do cruel and nasty things to other people, and it gets to the point where he will, they all presume to 
think, well, let's see, what would make him the happiest? And they go down the train of thought of, you know, if I do something really terrible to this other person, then that'll make him happy. Now, it's probably, it doesn't get super specific, but I could probably imagine that what Tolkien has in mind here is the idea that being cruel to the people who were, you know, more inclined to follow the voice, you know, would be what would make him the happiest. And so it probably starts that way, but then goes downhill and eventually just spreads to everything. But again, not a whole lot of detail. So in that way, it is kind of similar to the Genesis account where we don't get tons and tons of detail on what goes on, but we do get just enough to really fill in, you know, in our own minds what probably happens in a sense. So that goes on for a while, and eventually he's just like, you know, anybody who goes along with the voice, I'm just going to kill you. And by this point, they're all living shorter lives, and, you know, the voice has actually spoken to them one more time and basically said, well, you have abjured me, but you're still mine, and now you're just going to live shorter lives. So this is where the tale of Adonel kind of comes back to that point that was brought up in the Othrabeth of, you know, we live shorter lives because of what we did. And there are hints in some of his writings, you know, about, well, how did Morgoth accomplish this versus, you know, whether it was actually not Morgoth that did it per se, but humans that did it to themselves. And so this is, at least this version of the story is one in which humans kind of did it to themselves by choosing to follow Morgoth and not serve Eru Iluvatar. And because of that, that is why Eru Iluvatar takes away their immortality, which of course parallels the Genesis account. Because in Genesis, once Adam and Eve have done what they've done, God kicks them out of the garden and prevents them from getting back in so that they can't eat of the tree of life, so that they can't live forever. So this is kind of paralleling that part of the story where Humans lose their immortality not because Morgoth has the power to change their nature, but because all of them have gone and rejected God and, and done something really horrible, and so God does this as a punishment. And so they start dying, they start having a lot of disease and all this other stuff, and so they're more miserable than ever now, and Morgoth is giving them less and less, and the ones that he's tending to actually help are the ones who are the worst characters among them, the ones who are doing the most nasty, cruel things to other people. So again, here's a major difference because, again, we have this relatively large population already, and this is not something you could do in the Genesis account, even if, you know, the writer wanted to with only two people. So there's lots of people already around, and you can get them to do things to each other. You know, there's there's a really key narrative difference there in terms of telling the story. And it's not clear over what period of time this happens, so it's not really obvious whether there could have been multiple generations of men because Morgoth like goes away, comes back, and then seems to do it again and again because he comes back to this house that they have built him and he's implying, I'll be here sometimes but not all the time. So we get to this point where a bunch of the people are like, well, now we know the real truth because this guy's clearly a baddie and we really should have just stuck with the voice that we had originally. And some of them try to leave who believe in, you know, the voice, but 
of course, it's too late. They've already rebelled against God, and now they're still in the position that they're going to be in for the rest of their lives, which is they're mortal. They're not going to get back to where they were because they had forsworn God and served Morgoth, you know, even if it was kind of under pressure. So then, of course, we get kind of the connection to how men got there now, and basically branches of men broke off and left and tried to go to the west, and that's how they eventually come and meet Finrod and the other elves in Beleriand. So that's that's basically the sum of the story. Now, the interesting thing here, of course, is that unlike in the biblical account where we have you know this character who just comes in, plants the seed, and gets Adam and Eve to sin, and then is just kind of like hands off... Morgoth seems to be a lot more hands-on. He comes in and he tries to corrupt them, and then he just actively starts acting like, you know, their, you know, their god on earth, basically, which he basically calls himself. And the serpent in the Bible never really does that either. He tacitly acknowledges that, you know, God is who he says he is, but just kind of tries to undermine what he said. Whereas in the version that Tolkien writes, Morgoth is just actively like, no, that that thing over there, that's that's the bad guy, and you should totally avoid him. So there's a really interesting difference there, but there's also other differences, like I've already mentioned, the fact that there's a bigger population so they can actually start doing things to each other. This kind of starts to parallel more you know, what happens later in Genesis where, you know, the first murder happens almost immediately after this when we get Cain and Abel and then Cain kills Abel just out of jealousy. And then by the time you get to Noah, basically the whole earth is just a nasty cesspit of, you know, evil people other than Noah and his family. But that's not really at the direct instigation of or implied instigation of, you know, Lucifer or whatever the serpent character is. That's a very different kind of thing. It's just they've all gone bad, and so they just kind of corrupt themselves. Whereas in Tolkien's story, Morgoth is kind of more directly involved. And this is partially, I think, because in Tolkien's conception, Morgoth was always very jealous of the children of Eru and very interested in finding them before the Valar, which is why in the in a lot of the accounts of him in, in interacting with the elves, you've got him coming to where they are and stealing away people who wander too far from the main group. And this is how we get, you know, the one version of the origin of orcs that is in the Silmarillion. That's not his original story. In the original story, orcs are just kind of clay or mud, or slime, or whatever, that he forms into these nasty things. But in later developments, he is very active in terms of looking for, you know, the children of Iluvatar and finding them. And so this is why, you know, he seemingly finds elves and men before the Valar do, but men even more so, because the Valar never run into men. And... There's a hint that this was never supposed to happen. The Valar aren't supposed to find men because in the early stages of the tale of Adonel, it the voice tells them, hey, eventually you're going to, you know, take over the entire earth. You're going to inherit the earth. 
but for now, you're children and you need to learn. And it seems that Iluvatar is much more directly interacting, although still not in a very overt way, with humans in a way that was not the case with elves. I don't think there's a single version of the origin of elves where the elves hear God's voice. The first real contact they have with you know, any of the good guys, let's say, is when Orome finds them. Other than that, elves are just kind of on their own, unlike humans who seem to have this, you know, direct line to God in some sense, which elves never had. And so it's a little bit interesting to look at that because that does very much parallel Genesis, whereas Tolkien's mythology with the elves is very, God is very hands-off. He's, you know, not directly addressing the elves in any way and kind of leaves it to the Valar to do that job. And Morgoth finds them first, but never manages to, you know, get connected with them enough to do anything. And it's really interesting to look at the differences there, because the only versions we have really of Morgoth interacting with the first elves is trying to create fear in them and stealing them away and stuff. He never comes in and tries to pretend that he is something that they're not. Is that because he doesn't think he'd be able to? Or because when he gets to humans, he's like, let me just try a different strategy because that first one didn't work out so well. Or, you know, why is Tolkien kind of doing a very different thing with the elves and humans in, in that sense? It's interesting to think about that and you have to wonder if part of it is because with the human fall, he is trying very deliberately to kind of mirror the Genesis account, whereas with elves, it's a very different thing. And the elvish origin story, let's say, is more designed to fit his own mythology of the Silmarillion, and the human thing was always supposed to be in the background, where it's supposed to be hinted at, and only late when he's writing this tale of Adonel does he really go into, okay, well, let's look at what that, you know, what the human's own story of their fall is. That was always kind of a thing that was just in the background, and he wasn't really going to tell us. It was behind the curtain. We know what happens with the elves, because those elves are still around, whereas the people who lived at the time that Morgoth was, you know, doing their thing doing the thing with humans, they're all dead because that was long enough ago that their mortal lives have not lasted long enough to bring them to, you know, meeting the elves and getting real first-hand account of all that. So it's not even clear that the tale of Adonel is accurate. It's a legend that was passed down in her people, so it could be accurate, but we don't know. And so you could still even imagine for instance, that her version of the story is a slight corruption of something that was a lot more like the original Genesis account. And so, you know, if, if for instance, Morgoth did exactly what the serpent did in Genesis, you could see how that story might, over time, kind of become the story that we get as the tale of Adonel. So it's just really interesting to compare these and ask, you know, why are these two stories, what happens to elves and what happens to men, why are they so different? What's the reason for why Morgoth treats the two groups so differently? And why does Eru Iluvatar directly, you know, get involved with humans whereas he doesn't with elves and 
you know, there's a lot of interesting questions there to explore, which I do not have time or even necessarily the sufficient information to really delve into that because it's not clear why Tolkien did any of that. It, I don't think there's enough of his notes, at least in what I have available, to explain why. I don't think he ever really goes back and explores why would the difference be so significant. He does a lot of writing about, you know, why the world is the way it is and why his mythology shapes out the way it does, but I don't think he ever addresses this question, and it's a really interesting one to think about. But at any rate, that is the tale of Adonel in its, you know, most developed form. He had some other scattered notes, according to Christopher, with some other, you know, briefer versions of the story. And as he often does, you know, he'll write kind of a sketch and then write a bigger version. And then he might go back and rewrite the bigger version multiple times. But in this case, I don't think he wrote that many, if I remember correctly. So that's kind of the only real developed version of the fall of man that we get anywhere in Tolkien's writings. So it's really interesting to compare, like I said, both the elves, but also to the Genesis account and see, you know, what the differences are and narratively why those differences might exist. Hope you enjoyed this exploration of this topic. If you did, then please do give it a like and share the video around. If you've got any theories on why Morgoth treats the elves different from men or any of the other questions I've raised, please do leave those in the comments. If you want to catch more content like this, please do subscribe. If you're on YouTube, make sure you click the bell icon so you don't miss any notifications. You can also follow me on my other platforms that I've got linked in the description below, which also has my support links and social links. Don't forget on Twitter, I do share a bunch of Tolkien-related trivia questions multiple times per week. Until the next time, I'm the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namarie. Thanks to all my channel supporters, especially Elf Friends P.A. Brew News, Nathan Dufour, and Paul Leone.